um, that is just for Liz. She's the only one who's going to be able to see that. So we would encourage you. We'll have people up there that can help you with that. And we encourage you to take advantage of those three different ways following the service. So at this time, I want to go ahead and dismiss all of our kids ages 3 through 8. Preteens stay in this week. All kids ages 3 through 8 to you are dismissed to go with Miss Allie out there in the back. All of those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. As we move back into the series, we actually started it around this time last year. We looked at 1 Samuel, um, and so we, we took a little bit of a break for our missions month. Uh, and then an Advent series, but we are back in it. And so uh, those of you uh, who may have been with us, of course, we, through the first Samuel, we have these scripture journals. Now this is for first and second Samuel. So if you got one for first Samuel, this is, this is it. You don't need anything else. However, if you've been a visitor with us or you've been coming, uh, you know, since we started this and maybe you don't have one of these, there are uh, many available out there in the back and we have more. So if you don't see any, just ask me or ask somebody, uh, and we can direct you to them. And so this is our gift to you, and uh, we would love for you to be able to take advantage of it, should you so choose. Um, the last thing I would say before I move into the service is out there in the foyer um, are a series of devotionals out there that I've kind of, uh, you know, gathered together. Uh, these are are, are devotionals that I personally have vetted uh, and, you know, and say, hey, they're really solid. Not to say that they're the only ones that are good. There are many, many out there. These are just some of the ones that are examples uh, that I can have out there. And so um, these are not for you to take. Uh, those are just examples because I know many times it's difficult. You, you want to start the new year with a new resource, but it can be overwhelming. Where do I go? What do I do? These are just some examples for you to take a look at. Um, to see, does this fit me? Does this fit something that I would do? So feel free to take a look at those. And if you need help getting one, by all means, contact me, and I'd love to help you out with that. But those are just some examples. And I would encourage you as the new year starts to, to look at this as a year as an opportunity to develop those habits of daily drinking from the Word of God and as it nourishes your soul within there. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and read it in its entirety this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Hear now, <clears throat> hear now the word of the Lord. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when I was looking behind him, he saw me and he, he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. And then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan his son. And for all the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. 
And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said to him, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said that it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Least the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Least the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields of offering. For there the shields of the mighty was defiled, and the shields of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, you who clothed you in luxurious scarlet, who put on ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word and for your goodness towards us. Be with us this morning. Enable us to see your word clearly and ultimately to respond to it with hope, with tenacity, but ultimately falling upon your grace and your mercy so that your kingdom will come in our midst. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in 2 Samuel, and immediately we're confronted with kind of a strange situation on many different fronts. And of course, as we move into this chapter 1, what's one of the first things we look at in question? Why did David kill the guy? I mean, this seems a little odd. This little, I mean, talk about killing the messenger, right? Well, let's be first and clear. This isn't a message this isn't a passage trying to teach us how to handle bad news, right? That's not what this passage is about. And it helps us to also remember when we deal with this, because, you know, in 2024, that's what the first things that we see and we understand. But that's not what the first readers would have looked at, and they would have seen a whole lot more going on. And one of the things that hinders us in seeing is that in our English Bibles, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are, absolute, are, are actually separated. In the original scroll, in the original writing, they're all one body of literature. The, first, there is no 1 and 2 Samuel. There's just simply Samuel. And it divides, and it divides, you know, basically for purpose of showing, hey, this is the end of Saul's kingdom and the beginning of David's kingdom. But in doing so, it kind of cuts this narrative in half. And, and this is really still part of the section that belongs with chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And as we look at that, and there's all kinds of literary devices that kind of help us see that. For example, it specifically right off the bat refers us to go back to the battle that David had with uh, the Amalekites. In which the Amalekites had taken um, uh, all the people all of his wives and all of his goods and all their children and, and kind of run away with them. And David defeated them and came back to the city of Ziklag. And of course, we're reminded that initially David was supposed to be part of that battle and he was supposed to be part of the battle really fighting with the Philistines. 
there on Mount Gilboa, but um, through what I argued a work of God, removed him from that battle completely. And instead he was fighting against the enemies of God, the Amalekites. And of course we saw in chapter 31, what we saw, and if we remember, we need to go back to that. Again, this was all one text, all the same writer. We saw a very different version of Saul's death. And so we're immediately supposed to go back and say, wait a minute, what this guy just said doesn't line up at all with what we saw in chapter 31. In chapter 31, we saw that all the people were closing in, yes, on Saul. And what he did is he asked his armor bearer to kill him. But his armor bearer refused to put his hands on the Lord anointed. So Saul didn't try to kill himself with a spear. He tried to kill himself with a sword because he didn't want the enemies of God to be one who would be the ones who killed him. And then immediately following that, the armor bearer, seeing that Saul had died, the armor bearer killed himself. And so what we see right off the bat, if we're reading this, the first reader would say, wait a minute, this isn't right. Now, so how do we judge which is the right narrative, which is the right story of how Saul died? Well, the narrator, the narrator, excuse me, gave us the right story. When we're making an interpretive analysis, we go with, because the narrator said, this is what happened. And so we look at this and we say, wait a minute, okay, so this this isn't the Amalekite boy messenger or young man. He's not a boy. Is not telling the right story here. He comes in and he's, he's, he's presented himself in a place of mourning. That's when it talks about his appearance. That's, that's the appearance of one who's in mourning. And he spins a tail. Now, what is he looking for? What he is anticipating is that David is going to be just like all the other kings of the world. The way we, in fact, would imagine pretty much everybody else, any other potential leader, they would say, hey, wait a minute. This guy's going to be happy to see me. This guy's going to be happy to see that I was able to, to, to uh, scavenge the, the crown. And I can spin a tail. And you know what? If I tell him that I'm ultimately the one who killed him, I'll probably get, I'll probably get a stipend. I'll probably get a reward because... The Saul guy, he's been trying to kill David. So from an earthly perspective, the guy's saying, hey, opportunity. When I come to David, and many of us would even kind of expect, David wouldn't be lamenting, which is what we see. David would be doing, you know, if he was going to sing in a song, it would be more like a Taylor Swift song, you know, that really bashes his enemy. Or it would be something like Ding Dong, the witch is dead, Right? That's what we would kind of expect. Hey, all right. Saul's gone. Let's have fun now. But that's not the way David is. You see, the whole point that what this passage is saying ultimately is this. That David was completely innocent in the removal of Saul as king. He had no part of it at all. Even in the end, not only was he not at the battle, but even in a heart level, David was completely innocent. Now that matters. It matters a lot. Keep in mind what the Sermon on the Mount teaches us. When Jesus says, you know, hey, so you say you haven't committed murder, but if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. David didn't even have that. He responds to Saul's death, even though he was one who was after, as lament. And in fact, even avenged the one who claimed, though almost assuredly this is not what happened, he avenged the one who claimed to have taken matters into his own hands and killed the Lord's anointed. You see, what this is showing us ultimately is David is innocent, but to an even more kind of heart level for us, what 2 Samuel does is it highlights that what we've seen from David is one who has placed his heart so much into the will of God. What he has longed for is not his own exaltation, but ultimately submitted himself to see God as king, that he has desired that it is God's kingdom that reigns, not David's kingdom, not even Saul's kingdom, 
but his heart is so fixed on God and waiting on God that has produced in us something that is otherworldly, a different kind of kingdom. And so what this chapter very subversively does is it asks us to examine ourselves and what is it that we are truly longing for? What is it as we, as we respond to different events in our lives, does the way we, we react to things, what does it examine, what does it reveal in our hearts is our heart's true longings for us. You see, this revealed quite clearly that what David's heart was was ultimately to wait upon the Lord. His heart was for the living God. Now, this isn't to say he was perfect, no. But his heart was waiting on the Lord. Now, keep in mind who the first readers of this would be. The first readers of this would have been the people of God in exile. And so this is actually a very profound message to them as they are in exile and they're waiting on God to end their exile, to bring them out from under the rule of the Babylonians. It's a reminder to them to say, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord within there. And we see that. And so the first 16 verses of chapter 1 is David interacting with this messenger who's in this messenger working from the way you would expect the, way, the ways of the world. But you see David responding in different ways. He immediately moves to lament. He immediately moves to fasting. He immediately moves to, to mourning. And not only does he do that himself, he leads his people as a leader, he brings them and says, this is what's going to characterize my rule and my reign. And so it begins, and we see in verses 17 through 27, the end of it, we see really the first poetry that we find in David. Now, we've known up to this point he's a talented musician, but we haven't actually seen any of his poetry. Now, we have because we looked at some of the, the psalms that went with his time and when he was hiding uh, uh, from Saul. But for the reader who's just reading through 1 Samuel, this is the first time you see that. But notice what he does. It says that he taught and called the people of Judah to sing and to give this lamentation. Now, that's important. That's extremely important for what's about to happen. Because if you keep in mind, the people of Judah, that was essentially David's tribe. That was David's people. Now, Saul was not of the people of Judah. In fact, he was of the tribe of, of Benjamin. So he was far more associated with the people in the tribes of the north, whereas David was far more associated with the tribes and the people of the south. And so the people of the south would be far more likely to exalt and be ready, like, okay, we got rid of Saul. You know, now we got our, we got our tribe in the, is ready to come into power. Hey, all right. It's kind of like when we have a presidential election and we get rid of the bozo that we didn't like and we're all excited about the bozo we're about to put in. That was unkind. I shouldn't have said that. Their guy versus our guy. How about that? But what you see is this lamentation. And we would expect the lamentation for Jonathan, right? But we see him lamenting for Saul as well. And in fact, even in the lamentations, he calls for the people to remember the benefits that Saul had brought to them as king. So in other words, he's not just coming in and saying, look, this guy was a bozo. I'm going to come in and I'm going to really make things better. It's a completely different way of looking at leadership. And what it ultimately does is it called the first readers and it ultimately calls us to make sure and to look and say, is God the weightiest glory in our hearts, in our life? It calls us to ask this very simple question. Is your hope for God more than anything else? You see, we're in a time of year where a lot of us are making plans. We're thinking through 
different things. We're not necessarily starting diets, but we're watching YouTube videos about diets, right? Or we're reading books about diets thinking, you know what, I should do that. Now, if you're like me, it doesn't usually get much past that, but there is that, that initial planning. Yeah, you know what? I should probably do a diet. I should probably make some different goals. Some of you, you may be thinking, hey, I'm getting close to graduation, whether that's college graduation, and so you're making plans for employment, or you're graduating from high school, and so you're thinking through, what does that look like for me? Does that look like college applications? Does that look like uh, going into the workforce, what does that look like for me? So there's all kinds of planning within there that we're doing. And some of you, you may be looking at retirement. And so you're looking, you're saying, what are my goals? What am I wanting in life within there? What am I hope for? And so, but I would suggest to us that whether consciously or unconsciously, pretty much all of us are asking, what is it that we want in life? Now here in Texas, for those of us who maybe you've been brought up in church or you go to church, it's easy, you know, it's kind of like the old, old saying in churches, what's the always, when you're in church, what's the answer? It's always Jesus, right? And for us, we can, we, can, we can look and say, well, of course. What is it that we always want? And we can be pious and we can say, we always want God to be first in our lives. And so there's all kinds of times I'll do weddings for new couples. I remember doing a wedding for a couple that uh, a long time ago um, didn't even, to my knowledge, go to church. And they were saying, oh, well, what's most important to you? Well, it's important that God is first in our family. But yet none of their life, that's the answer that we expect. But as you look through the life, does their life reveal that? Does it reveal that? Because you see, it's easy for us to always take even good things. You see, things, these all kind of goals, planning, retirement, graduation, employment, uh, weight loss, these are all good things. Good things to think about. I'm in no way trying to bash them. But it's easy for our hearts, which as John Calvin said, are idle, idle factories that kind of take them and turn them into the ultimate. Even some of our spiritual goals can become like that. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading on spiritual disciplines and so on and so forth. And uh, my heart was cut in two not too long ago in one of the books I was reading it, it, as I was thinking through the spiritual disciplines that was talking about that. And I was imagining myself and I got kind of excited about it. But then he, he put this, this, this note in the, in the book that said, you know, the important thing is you can, it always must be about seeking first the kingdom. In other words, it can't be about you imagining yourself as this spiritual guru. Or you can't imagine yourself people looking and saying, oh, look at Bo, what a great spiritual giant he is. Oh, how easy our hearts are turned to those kind of idols. Because what, what does that reveal within that? We're excited when people notice us and give us applause. Well, what does Jesus say about that? When your righteousness is just before men, that's all the reward you're going to get. Our righteousness is called to exceed that of the Pharisees. So there's this role for us in the believer to constantly be examining ourselves, to say, is what I really want in my heart fixed and longing on God? Is that my end goal? Is that what I'm end resting on? Because folks, this is a reminder to us because whether you're an unbeliever and you're struggling with what matters or you've been a believer for 50 years and you're prone to wander and prone to allow other things to take your heart captive, Anything less than a heart set on God will lead to a false rest, a false hope, and ultimately a division in our soul. You see, outwardly, many of your goals may be put into place. There's all kinds of leadership and self-help books that can help you get that promotion, that can help you plan for retirement, that can help you do all these things. And they may come into pass, and so you may get that promotion. That boss who has made your life miserable may end up getting fired or demoted. That in-law who made, has made your holidays miserable both by, by being so arrogant may get shamed. But we don't feel rest. We don't feel peaceful. 
We don't feel satisfied. Why? Because idols, even good things that we have turned and corrupted and made them into idols, good things from God, they never ultimately satisfy. That bitterness will not go away in our triumph. And our identities will not be more secure. They'll be every bit as fragile. But that's all that the idols of this world can offer. What you see in David's response to this news is one whose heart wasn't set on becoming the king, but ultimately his heart was set on the king, the true king, which is Yahweh, which was God. And so in David's response, we see a vision for a very different type of kingdom that runs counter to the way our world works within us. And once again, we see in many ways, we see a contrast. Here, Samuel gives us the contrast between David and Saul. Saul is one who saw his end as being the king. He fit the way our world works in many ways. His end was getting the job that he wanted, and not just getting it, but holding on to it and making sure no upstart got in his way. And what is his life characterized by the fruit of one who has placed his hope in idols? And idolatry, even if that idolatry was the kingship of, of, of Israel. It was anxiety. It was fear. It was a lack of peace. Bitterness, anger, ultimately leading to murder, insanity. David's heart was set on God, and so in his grief, we see a freedom. We see a freedom because from the start, his longing was for God within there. And so for us, folks, our greatest good, our greatest longing in a world that is filled with brokenness is ultimately to fill this world with the aroma of Christ. In a world that says getting what you want is ultimately going to make you happy, that's just going to lead to cynicism. But this gives us a longing for a better king, a true king. And that king isn't David, it's ultimately Jesus Christ. The one who is the ultimate king of the world, the one who took upon himself human flesh, who died to make atonement for all the sins, the fact that we are Idolatrous, the fact that we are constantly prone to leave the God we love, the one who ultimately became sin so that through his death we would become, we would receive his righteousness, we would receive his goodness, that through the power of his spirit he would make us whole and even enable us to want and love God. Our world, and when we place it in our context, it's, always, it's not going to have that kind of peace. It's not going to have that perspective. Our political leaders that we love to put our hopes into and in saving this world, what do they say? They say never waste a good crisis. Don't let a crisis go by a way and by which you can't get some benefit. And Christ is our king. What we know is ultimately his kingdom will come. His will will be done. And it is good. And it frees us to trust him and love him. To receive his grace and his mercy. And to be made whole. And that sets us free from the cynicism of this world. What does it mean to long for God's kingdom come? What does it mean for long, God, longing for God's kingdom come? First question becomes to us. A deeply important, it's a very simple question, but it is a profound question. Is Christ your king? Is your allegiance, is your hopes found in his kingdom and in his rule? Have you placed your hope before him? Trusting him, trusting in his grace, saying he is that which is most important. As I've tried to live my life to build up my kingdom, all I've done is made ruin and wreck. This is not, this is disaster. 
And asking that question, it is both incredibly fearful, but it's also incredibly tender. It's fearful because of the weightiness of it. It is a truly, quite literally, question of life and death. But it's tender because the king to which we are called to submit ourselves is one who is gentle and lowly. One who doesn't wait for us to figure things out. One who doesn't wait for us to be good before he brings us into his kingdom. But the one who broke into our kingdom in darkness and grabbed us. Who loved us. Who made atonement for sins for us. Who moves towards us with an just unfathomable love that overwhelms us. It says, as we say so often, quoting Tim Keller, you're more sinful than you can possibly understand, but more loved than you can ever comprehend. So it's weighty, but it's also tender because the one who calls us to fix our eyes upon him is the most beautiful, most loving, most glorious king you could ever want. And he moves towards you not at least those who come to him by faith, by say, I will come to you by nothing, by grace. He moves towards us with love and compassion. Now, if you try to come to him on your own turn, saying, I'm going to earn my love, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna try to come to you with the building up of my kingdom, then you'll find nothing but rejection because your kingdom's not good enough. It doesn't belong in his kingdom. Oh, but when we come to him by grace through faith, we see a king who en envelops us in his love. So is he your king? And what he does is he calls friends for all of you. You see, this is the part that a lot of us don't get. Many of you, you may be a Christian for many, many years. And many of the longings you have may be good longings. But the ultimately, what God is calling us to understand is he doesn't say, hey, this is your, your, your secular part, your, your employment part. This is your family part. And here over here for Sunday mornings from 1045 to noon, that's, that's my part. That's the God part. God says, no, 24-7, seven days a week, you're mine. Your employment is mine. Your finances are mine. Your money's mine. Your children are mine. Your goals and your ambitions are mine. But that's good, friends. That's glorious. That's wonderful. One of the ways that we can move into that reality, though, is for us to pray our goals, pray our needs. And we do so for, that's important for many ways. Number one, it recognizes God's sovereignty over all of our lives it recognizes that anything that we want ultimately will come by his grace and because he has allowed it and not because of our efforts. But it does as we consistently take our issues, our heart's longings before him, it constantly puts our longings before his purifying gaze. And allows them to change us. And so often what we find as we take our heart's desires before him and pray for him, he begins to change us, the work of his spirit, to say, maybe this isn't what I need. Maybe this isn't what God wants for me. And it enables us to hold all of our plans before him with open hands because he is ultimately that which is our, whole, our hearts long for. But the other thing with the prayer that I would suggest to you is not just as we, it's easy for us and many of us, we'll pray for our needs, we'll pray for our wants, we'll pray for our desires, we may pray for that promotion or whatever, or for our kids to get into that college or whatever that may be. But do we pray for our heart's response? In other words, do we pray, God, as we have these longings, I pray that my heart doesn't begin to want this more than it wants you. Or if you deny this or you bring this to me, I pray that my heart will ultimately reveal that you were my greatest longing, that you were my greatest joy within there. 
In other words, pray for the ever more important heart transformation so that we can say with Paul, whether we're in plenty or we're in what, we're able to be satisfied. Why? Because we've placed our hopes in the Lord. Another, and this is a discipline that many have used throughout the years, called the practice of daily examine. And what this is, is towards the end of the day, you can do it in a journal, you can just sit in your chair. It's just kind of a, a time of prayer where you look through your day and you ask the Holy Spirit to come in and reveal things within you. Not just things that happened, to, but what was going on in your heart when that happened. So, for example... I may have gone through, and, and God may reveal that I made a really um, sarcastic and cynical comment about somebody. Now, I, in general, tend to think I'm a nice person. And so it's easy for me to just blow that off. But when I sit down and I begin to pray through it, God reveals in my heart that I'm not nearly as loving as I think I am. And that becomes not an invitation to shame, but an invitation to take my brokenness before the Father in repentance and to receive the assurance of his forgiveness, but also to ask for a renewed heart within me that says, no, because my greatest hope is Jesus, I can be set free from my cynicism. I can be set free from my need to make sarcastic remarks sometimes. As we go through the daily examine, it's good for us to, it's easy for us, at least it is for me, to just go directly to the sinful parts of my life because I'm a really good at sinning. I'm really good at that, and it's really easy for me to spot. But let me suggest to you, it is equally important for us to stop and give glory for the places where we've seen the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to stop and to celebrate what the Holy Spirit has been doing. I would suggest to you that what we see in David in his response is ultimately a fruit of God's Spirit at work in him that has enabled him to be one who has placed his entirety of his hope in the living God. And so to thank God for that. Hey, God, thank you. When I was able to respond to this person, not in anger, but in love and in gentleness. Hey, God, that wasn't me just being a nice person. That was your spirit at work. Thank you, God. You're so good. You know what? God, you're at work in my life. That's great and that's wonderful. But also, we confess sin. We receive forgiveness. And we ultimately ask the spirit to change us within that. You see, it's easy as well for us to kind of look at it, and like I said, because our hearts are such idle factories, we can look at things and say, well, you know, I'm so broken. This is so messed up. I guess that's just who I am. But we can have a confidence in God's grace that he not only can forgive us, and we can receive, and we can dance in his mercy, but he can also change us. So as we look in our lives, and our heart reveals to us that maybe... As we've moved through different lives, if we've encountered different hardships or we've encountered and we entered into different brokenness of this world, that's revealed our hearts have other idols in there. What is the answer to that? It isn't to move away in shame. It isn't try to find some self-help way to kind of pull ourselves up to make us a new, better you in 2024. Let's go to the God of mercy. And in many ways... It's a call for us to come to the table. To the God who bore our sins to give us his righteousness. You see, in this, we recognize not only that Christ paid the payment for our sins, which is in and of itself glorious and good, but he united himself to us in his death and in his resurrection, he gives us the nourishment that we need. Now, this is symbolic by faith that we do. I'm not saying the elements themselves convey this. 
But they do become a time of examine for us as we hold the bread and the cup together to ask, God, is this where I'm placing my hope? I need you. I need you. And so I'm going to invite all of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've received him by faith and trusting in his grace alone to come. You may not have been perfect throughout this week, and that's okay. Come and rest in his grace. Submit yourself before him. Receive his goodness. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not received him by faith, then we would ask that you not come and take the elements, but instead that you would today, you would receive him as king of your life by faith, acknowledging your need for him, that he is the true living God, that Christ died on the cross making a perfect atonement for, for sins, that he rose again from the dead, and lives forevermore. That he can forgive you on the basis of his grace alone. There's four communion stations. There's two here in the front, two in the back. Um, for those of you who need gluten-free options, there's a little tray in here that has this little cup. And, and um, there's a, a, at the bottom, there's a place that has a gluten-free cracker in it. I want to invite you, all of you, who are like me, broken and prone to find other kingdoms of my own making, to come now and submit to the greatest, one most wonderful, most glorious and gracious king and to receive and say, what I need ultimately is you. And to be reminded by that, by this time of worship, by faith. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. Your goodness and your grace is so good and so wonderful. We pray, Lord, that you would just be with us now. Father, I know in my own heart I'm so prone to have alternative kingdoms that I desire. And my life shows the fruit of that. Rather than showing a heart that is fully trusting in you, it shows a heart that is often filled with pettiness and bitterness that exalts when my enemies have fallen because it's good news for me. But I thank you that Christ is so different and that he offers me not only his forgiveness, but his life. Enable me to receive it now by faith. In Jesus' name. Come, the gifts of God for the people of God.
As you hold these, take a moment as you hold the elements. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. In his gracious tenderness and his love to convict you of any places that maybe have become your ultimate good that isn't God. Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those to you now. Fathers, we hold this ultimate reminder of our true King and what He has done for us. I'm reminded of how quickly I forget Him. How quickly I look for other substitutes. I thank you that Christ has loved me so much that he died for me. Remove those substitutes so that only Christ remains. The night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. We take this now in remembrance of him. Same manner, he took the cup. Said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. We drink this now in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for the provision of Christ, which overwhelms us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the celebration of what he has done for us, it reminds us that we have been made right with God together, but it's also a reminder that the same spirit which has made us right with God has formed us into one body. So we take this now as a time to celebrate. So greet those around you. Take a moment, and we'll gather back out in just a second to, to close. But greet those around you in the peace of Jesus Christ. scheme of man 
I know so many of you moms, one of your favorite things about today is school starts tomorrow, right? And so, but for those of you who you just need a break, guess what? There is a Moms Together night this Friday night at 7 p.m. here at the church, a bingo night. It's just a time for you to have fun, just get together. So we'd encourage you to become, be part of that, be part of a fellowship of fellow moms who are also this close to strangling their kids, right? No, I'm just kidding. You guys are, would never do anything like that. Um, but hey, it is a great time of fellowship. We encourage you to be part of that. Um, also, the next men's breakfast um, is going to be at 8.30 a.m. here at the church, January 20th. So that's in a couple of weeks. Next week, in addition to, uh, we're going to give Liz the, and look, she doesn't want a huge thing, so we're not going to overdo it. But um, uh, but we will present her with the frame uh, that's going to do that. So if, you, if you're, you had something that you wanted to be brought to us, you need to make arrangements. Just drop it off at the church because we are going to give that to her next week. And so we would encourage you before you leave, don't forget there's videos up there that you can uh, make if you want. We'll have help for you to be able to do that. Just a short, quick 30-second video is great or shorter it doesn't matter. Uh, there's a place where you can write cards or put your own cards in a basket there in the foyer, and there's a frame that you can sign. You'll be able to see it. It's there in the foyer in the back. Also, next week, Kara Hodson with Operation Mobile is going to be here. So following the service, we'll have a time for you to get to go know her more, where we'll have pizza. You can hear more about what God has been doing with her ministry in Zambia following the service next week. And as you go, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're dismissed.